You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion across the autism community. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky, and I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Karen Pierce to the podcast to talk with us about early detection and diagnosis of autism. Dr. Pierce is a professor at the University of California, San Diego, in the Department of Neurosciences. She's focused her career on this subject and has become a pioneer in the era with unmatched experience. I'm so excited to learn from you, Dr. Pierce, and share your experience with our listeners. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. I'm very excited to be here. You're you're doing a you know providing a great service to the autism community. Very unique podcast, and I'm delighted to be one of the voices. Well, I think it's going to be a powerful voice. I, I, this is a topic right now that I think is is kind of at the tip of everybody's mind. Is you trying to get children access to care, what early identification looks like. But before we go down that route, I'd I'd like to give a little bit of taste of, you know, where people came from, what brought the interest. This is such a field where (laughs) passion drives a lot of what we're doing. So what is it that either within your research experience or maybe just what drove you here in the first place, what is it that related your academic experience to autism? Yeah, so I always love to tell people the story of how actually I got interested in autism. I'm actually born and raised in New York, and I went to Stony Brook University as an undergrad. And my roommate said, hey, why don't you do this research assistantship? It's an easy A. It's working with children that have some sort of an issue. I don't even know what it is, but go to room 200 in this building. So I went there, and it turns out it was a research lab for children with autism that had a lot, were nonverbal and had a lot of problems with aggression and frustration. And it was literally my first day, and we were going to an ice cream parlor named Friendly's to take George out to get some ice cream because he had gone a whole week. He was delightful. He didn't you know, have any aggressive problems, and that was his reward and I love ice cream a lot so George and I both ran to the front looking you know at all the different ice cream choices and then all of a sudden George turned around and punched me in the face and really hard he's six foot two like 180 pounds and 16 years old and I fell down and I was I was completely shocked and then you know one of the graduate students ran over and said Karen you know don't cry don't say anything to him because you might accidentally reinforce the behavior I'm like what this is like a behavioral lab back in the day I thought it was really unusual so I eventually went to the bathroom and cried and they thought there's no way she's coming back but I came back because I thought wow you know there must be so much emotion and complexity going on in George's mind and heart that he he just got so excited about the ice cream he probably you know he can't talk he's completely nonverbal I want to I want to figure this out I want to help George I know that there's a reason that he did this. I don't know what it is, but but I but I'm all in. And then I went back the next day and then I applied to a couple of PhD programs that specialize in autism and I never looked back. Um and so that is my very unusual introduction into the field of autism. You know, I, I find it I find it amazing is that, you know, the way that you saw that event is probably what's making your experience as a researcher so great is that you you saw something occur and immediately it's like, OK, well, I want to understand. It. I want to see the perspective. And I think community wise, we'd all benefit from that is you, we see something slightly different that we might not understand individually. It's asking that question. It's going deeper and understanding that everyone's perspective, everybody's perception of events is slightly different. 
Um, and that, that kind of goes into the fact that, you know, we have the World Autism Month right now. And autism used to be such a huge stigma back probably when you started and I started our career paths is that, you know, it wasn't understood to the same level. We didn't see the strengths. We didn't see the fact that, you know, autism is a variety of differences, but they're not they're not inherently bad differences. It's things that we have to understand and empower the right way. So what do you want for people to understand about autism in general that maybe we might have blinders on to right now. Yeah, I mean, I think you articulated it perfectly that there, you know, autism has a lot of abilities and disabilities, um, and we need to understand what the profile is of individuals on the spectrum so that we can develop better ways to help them instead of just sort of this, you know, one size, you know, fits all sort of model. I think I'm excited that the field clinically, as well as particularly in the research area, is moving towards trying to understand this heterogeneity from both a clinical and a biological perspective. And so I think, um, yeah, just really recognizing that there's a wide range. I mean, it's still, even to this day, it just surprises me that you have an individual who goes off and gets a PhD. They could potentially have a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. And you have another individual who can't, you know, is, is still not able to talk and they have the same label. And so it, it, it poses, you know, a lot of interesting challenges for the field, but also, you know, opportunities to really understand what, what makes those two individuals the same as well as uh, different. And I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that it's being understanding of the depth and even in the breadth of everything that's going on, its treatment itself becomes that much more challenging. Um, and I think that you hit it. I mean, you talked about being able to, I guess, really look at the profile, looking at all that contributes to a diagnostic evaluation for a child with autism. It could be very different for 10 different people that come in is that they might all present slightly different. But how early can we really start to identify any of these traits in general? And what are those traits that you can identify early versus later on where maybe you can say, you know what, I, I see some of this going on early. Maybe I can work on some of these core foundational skill sets so that they never need additional supports and that they could really utilize all their strengths the way they want to and be empowered in the world throughout their entire life without interference or barriers. That's that's exactly right. I mean, the whole point of all that we're doing is so that every child can reach their full potential, right? I, I like study vocabulary words even at my age. Like I'm always everybody's always trying to, to be their best. And it's the same for kids with autism. And to do that at our center, I developed this program called Get Set Early, where we are working with hundreds of pediatricians in the San Diego area and we can identify autism as young as 12 months. And our program is really unique because we we have this big network of pediatricians and they screen for autism at 12, 18, and 24 months. So we try not to miss anyone. And then they get referred for treatment. I mean, they get referred, sorry, for a diagnostic evaluation. And once they come to our center for an evaluation, we give feedback to the parents about the child's strengths and weaknesses. And then we refer for treatment on that very same day. And so that really kind of fast tracks engagement for the families. Um, and 
you know, we use a lot of, you know, research-based tools like the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule to help us get to that point of understanding whether or not a child is on the spectrum, but we also use clinical judgment. And a lot of the key indicators at this young age, at like 12 or 14 months, are a little bit more subtle that you may not, you may not notice. Um, they're really more about like social attention behaviors. Mm. So like if you know if a mother happens to be like looking at something over in the distance a typically developing child might go ahead and, and and try to look and see what the mom's looking at whereas a child on the spectrum might not but that's not particularly glaring if you didn't know what to look for or like a typically developing child might be more likely to grab a toy and drop it in you know his or her mom's lap to to want to share that attention um uh and a child with autism may not do that same sort of intensive attention orienting sorts of behaviors. Um, and so a lot of it has to do with uh, social attention at that particularly young age. As you get a little bit older, things become more obvious with language and more repetitive sorts of interests start to creep in. But at 12 or 14 months, you know, those are not as glaring as some of the things that relate more to attention. Yeah. And it's got to be really tough. I mean, if you're working with millions of parents, that's going to be really tough to be able to kind of give those indicators and to be able to put that out there. Although it it helps, it starts the dialogue that they could potentially bring to their pediatrician. I would imagine is that the real work comes with the pediatricians themselves so that they can start to really understand. And I know that this has been a long time coming as far as being able to, to get the education built into the training uh, during their doctoral training of, of becoming a, a specialty trainings of becoming a pediatrician. But do you see that those well visits are paying that piece of the of the of the prize here as far as being able to kind of really help guide families? Is that where it should be happening? I, I think it really is. I think pediatricians are the first line of defense because Thankfully, now with expanded healthcare, most people do have regular visits to their pediatrician. And, and it's also just a natural place for this kind of dialogue to open up this, this question versus, you know, a, a family member or friend saying, oh, you know, what do you think about how Johnny's developing? I mean, the pediatrician is the perfect person to, to open up that, 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 you know, kind of uh, open up that portal. And the screening tool that we use with pediatricians and families is the CSBS. And the nice thing about it is the last question says, do you have any concerns about your child's development? Yes or no? Because parents actually know. For the most part, if a child is has some unusual traits of development, if they're on their way to being on the spectrum, the parents know and they almost always click yes. And even if they're super shy and they're also feeling not ready to have the conversation, they, they still check yes. And that allows the pediatrician to say, let's talk about this. You said yes. And there's also obviously scores. So we can say, you know, Johnny um, is doing great in these areas, but based on his age, he didn't get as many points on the screening questionnaire as I would have thought. I also see that you're, you have some concerns. So let's talk about this. And so that's how the sort of more of a simple way that we get families in for an evaluation very young at very young ages and in for treatment at young ages, because it really does start with a pediatrician. And with our get set early model, the way it works is I'll go around and meet pediatricians, show them how to use a screening tool, and then also give them some education about autism, early signs and symptoms. So they're a little bit more focused. And and med school, as you pointed out right now, is is you know really improving and enhancing awareness and understanding about autism through you know training in medical school. Whereas back you know in the day when we started, that wasn't a thing. I mean. I remember when I first started in the field, when Cure Autism Now um, came around, it was one of the earlier autism organizations, I was talking with a very, very famous autism researcher. And she's like, that's ridiculous. You can't cure autism. 
And I was really upset by that because I thought, well, why am I here? That you know, why? <laughs> like, what the heck? And but that was how people felt back then. Nobody really even knew that much, even like a world famous person. So we have come incredibly far. Circling back, I do think that the pediatricians play a massive role, and their heart's always in the right place, right? That's why they got into the field of being a pediatrician. So they're they're the perfect. Yeah, perfect. and and the the research and the guidance that you're providing through your program. Um, I think is the first step. I think it's it's being able to help people have a system to be able to work through where it's opening up that dialogue. But there's got to be other uh, impediments or barriers to being able to access the care. I mean, with the rates of autism that are currently out there, there just aren't enough clinicians to be able to do what's occurring. Um, have you seen any advances within the way that we're looking at diagnostics? Have you seen advances in the tools we're using to be able to push us to be able to make this a more efficient process and get people the care they need? Yes, I mean, that's an excellent point. Um, there really aren't enough licensed diagnosticians throughout the country to be able to provide evaluations to kids and needs. Even if you might recognize it, there's nowhere to go. There's also you know, policy within each state. Do they even have money for, for diagnostic services and treatment services? But to kind of go back directly to your question, one innovation that we're working on in our lab is to use eye tracking. Remember, you know, just a little bit ago in our conversation, I said that some of the earliest kind of markers of autism relate to social attention. What is a child paying attention to and when? Like, what is their timing? Like, even if a child eventually will turn and look, it, it might be a few seconds later than a typical child. And, and all this matters, right? The, the brain is enormously plastic during early development. It can reshape, remold. It's, it's got massive, you know, number of connections that are being formed between the first three months, particularly, I'm sorry, first three years, particularly like in the frontal lobe, that's very important for social development and attention. And so what a child looks at feeds their brain and it's, it, it eventually molds what their brain is going to eventually become. So I have a whole program of research revolving around eye tracking because I realized from all of my clinical experience, because I started working with George, doing treatment, doing all the stuff, and then I moved into neurosciences, that really um, you can map or quantify attention and that's really a great marker or kind of profile index of autism. So I've developed a battery of different eye tracking tests and I basically, um, each one of the tests are a little bit different. Some of them tap into a child's sort of visual attention. So kind of what they're looking at. Other tap, other tests tap into, can they shift attention quickly? Other tap into what do they like to listen to? What are the sounds that are attractive to them? And the nice thing about these eye tracking tests is you can do them in about a minute. I have a battery of around six different tests. Well, I've developed probably like 20, but if I find the test doesn't work, I throw it out in the trash. But I have around six different eye tracking tests that that work well for diagnostic accuracy with high positive predictive values and very high specificity, like 98, 99%. So that means that if you're typical or you're, you'll say language delayed, you don't have ASD, then you will pass at a rate of around 98%. That's what specificity is. Is it specific to the, the disorder or the issue that you're talking about? And again, they're super fast and easy. So I see the, the future in the field moving towards maybe some of these quantitative diagnostic tools, or at least as a screening tool to start out with. Um, so if you don't have a diagnostician and you have a mom who's concerned, a doctor says, I think this kid's on the spectrum, and then they fail a quantitative test like an eye tracking battery, that hopefully will be good enough to, to fast track them into treatment while you're waiting for that professional 
to do the diagnostic evaluation because a couple of months of, of behavioral treatment, which is very play-based, is actually probably great for all kids. And so it's kind of a win-win. And if you're right, if the eye tracking is right, which is right almost always, uh, you've just done a great thing. You've saved that kid a year of waiting. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's the, one of the first and probably most important barriers to be looking at is when you look at those choke points that occur with the process of getting somebody access to care. One of the first things is that diagnostic that's getting the foot in the door and getting the access to the treatment. Um, and I mean, when you look at early intervention in general, is that you're looking at being able to get the treatment started so that new behaviors or behaviors are coping mechanisms um, and ways to be able to adapt around situations aren't reinforced throughout life. Like for George, as if he learned a way to communicate and and found other ways that were equally as valuable to to punching in that situation, he might have defaulted to that in that environment. So are you seeing by being able to get people the throughput to access to care at an earlier age, are you seeing that it's helping the prognosis of being able to allow them to be more themselves as far as accessing all their skills and being able to be empowered, doing everything in the community that they want to do, contribute in the way that they want without barriers that, that were avoidable? Yeah, you know, that's an excellent question. And I, I, I believe that that is true, but you can't, you know, we're doing more of an objective study right now, tracking children that we detected between 12 and 24 months through the get set early model and following them in school age. You know, of course, COVID threw a wrench in this whole plan because school was not school. So I had to kind of wait a little bit. So we're now just, you know, getting into the schools and providing comprehensive profiling of the kids and seeing how they're doing. And then um, contrasting that with a bunch of community children who did not get identified through the get set early model, who may have come to attention naturally three, four or five years old and seeing kind of like where they are now to see kind of what the difference in trajectories are between the two children. So right now I can only say, yes, I really think that early detection, you know, and early treatment is great for families. But I, you know, I think I'm probably biased and that's, you know, more of an emotional response. We have to wait for the data to come in and see. But on a one, you know, on anecdotal levels, there are many children that we have identified and referred for treatment that look amazing now, that look great. And I'm so excited that I think it's it's because of the early detection that they look so great. Um, but, that, you know, there, there definitely are some children that are still struggling because um, mm -hmm. we haven't because I think that the, the, the missing piece is more understanding of the unique biology, right? You you interviewed Pam Feliciano um, a while back and you know they're looking for genetic differences. Uh, there might be some children that just have a particular gene issue. And if we knew what that was, maybe we could we could do something specific for that child. Whereas right now everybody is just thrown together in the same hopper. They all get almost the same type of treatment. And so some kids are doing awesome with that and, and some kids maybe not so much. So we we do need to move more towards precision medicine. And I think, you know, understanding biology at a molecular level, at least at an eye tracking level, because that's the other important thing to note is that my eye tracking, all of my different eye tracking tests, you know, eye tracking is incredibly accurate, but it's not that sensitive. So one of my, you know, like strongest eye tracking tests is called the GeoPref test. Um, I just published a paper with Teresa Wen and other people in my lab uh, with 1,863 toddlers. All of the toddlers got a full comprehensive diagnostic evaluation from a licensed psychologist, 
blind to eye tracking results just because we really wanted to test this and we wanted to check to see does it work well at all different ages between 12 and 48 months does it work well between you know children from hispanic backgrounds and african-american backgrounds and white you know we, so we tested all these different parameters as a major validation paper because we really are excited about the accuracy of this and you know overall looking at just the, the child's eye gaze so the sensitivity was only 17 percent meaning that only 17 percent of kids on the spectrum were identified but once the child was identified accuracy was incredibly high um we added in additional things like saccade rates and different eye tracking metrics and got that sensitivity up to 33 percent so that means now okay one of three children can be identified using eye tracking but this is just one test right my big vision is to add multiple eye tracking tests together so sensitivity can be 100% or 90, you know, extremely high, as well as specificity. Right now, we got the specificity down pat. You know, it's not a dent. There's like only just a handful of false positives out of over 1,863 kids. It's mm -hmm. it's you know, really accurate, but it's it's not that sensitive by itself. But I believe that when we add a lot of the tests together, that's where you're going to get the full sensitivity and specificity. I mean, that sounds like a, an amazing advancement that if it if it does come together, which it sounds like things are, are kind of coming, the pieces are falling where they need to right now, yeah. is that it's going to really be a game changer. Um, and I, I, when you're talking about, I mean, getting to early diagnostics and you're talking to being able to get the specificity of understanding exactly how this is working, like any behavior, is that the earlier we can get to treatment, the better it's going to be, is that as an adult is that I've probably created some some ways of interacting in the world, even in the business world, that had I known better 10, 10 years ago and started changing then is that it, it just helps. I mean, it's just a way to be able to navigate the world. But I think you hit on something and, and it's the it's the idea of, of not grouping autism as this giant bundle and, and treatment should vary, it should differ. And I think that the same way that you're pushing the diagnostic world right now to be a little bit more open-minded to, you know, there's got to be other ways to be able to get to the same answer. And there might be more efficient ways. And there might even be more accurate ways if we open our minds to, you know, let's use some of the technologies. Let's learn from what we did in the past. I think in the treatment field, we're going to see that same thing. And I've seen it a lot over the last 10 years where even behavioral therapy has moved to being normalized. It's becoming more natural and it's not taking the same techniques for every single person, not taking the same dosage for every single person. It's becoming more prescript prescriptive, which is wonderful to see. What do you see happening with the diagnostic world in that same vein? Do you see it becoming something where we will learn? So what used to be a three-month wait list followed by a month to get the testing and report writing, do you see that being shrunk down from what we've learned over time? Yes. I mean, I think a three-month wait list actually would be awesome if that were the case. Even here in San Diego, it can be long. And, and I, I've heard of different places where it could literally take one to one and a half years. Um, I see the future of diagnostics of autism kind of having multiple tools at our disposal you know there's no replacing kind of parent report and parent you know gut instinct um pediatrician instinct so those are clinical and now we're going to start hopefully being able to incorporate eye tracking into the into the arsenal of tools because of its high accuracy and it, although we need to continue to refine the the sensitivity of it but there's also i think space for molecular tests of autism because there are 
as the spark study has nicely shown us, you know, there are around 15% of children on the spectrum that have a known genetic issue that a blood test would quickly reveal. So if you start sort of adding together these pieces and blood test results can come back pretty quickly, eye tracking, like I said, is instantaneous we can start to use whatever method makes the most sense for that particular child and get, you know, diagnoses or at least characterization. My feeling is you need to understand the roadmap of the child's strengths and weaknesses. And if they're showing the weaknesses and they're not really, their social behavior and their language isn't where it needs to be, they're going to fall behind. Let's get them into autism-specific treatment. You know, the diagnostic label is really great for insurance billing purposes and other purposes, but really it's the phenotype. It's the, the profile that the kids are showing. That's really the issue that we, we need to jump in there and help. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, and that that goes to say is that a lot of the treatments that you'd be utilizing for somebody who identifies autistic, it would be the same treatment that you'd be using for somebody who's just having some social emotional behavioral disorders or maybe has social skill deficits is that you're going to see some cognitive behavioral therapy. You're going to see some ABA. You're going to see some speech and language therapies all mixed in because a lot of these things overlap as communication and socialization is pretty much our lives. <laughs> so, I mean, those are things yes. that you want to be able to improve on. That, if, you can if you can connect with people and get your needs met and understood, then you're, you, you know, you're going to be able to, to fast track your goals a lot better. Yeah. And I had the chance to be able to talk with you beforehand. And I wish everybody had had the opportunity to hear some of that dialogue. But you had mentioned the family stressor component. And this is something that inherently in my mind is that I automatically think, well, somebody is going to be getting early care, then obviously stressors go down. But you actually opened up my thought process on this is that you know, for some people is that that could actually create more stressors. Um, and we have to be able to navigate that with them appropriately. And that's a matter of providing the right treatment, the right recommendation, right social supports and timing. And what is it that you're learning from your study on some of these stressors or quality of life issues that maybe are underlying and aren't dug up yet that we haven't that we haven't really thought about? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you articulated it nicely um, that one family's stress reduction, which is learning, okay, now I understand why my child is so special and different, could be a massive stressor for another family. And we don't really necessarily know yet how to navigate, you know, those waters, this kind of understanding and appreciation of this. First of all, autism is very stressful pretty much for all families, um, but to, to varying degrees. And we haven't you know, really done any intensive analyses at this point to really answer that question. There are a lot of people in the field. I know like Alice Carter over in Boston and different other people. There are other people that really focus on stress and stressors and stress reduction. Um, and our lab is really more focused on biological mechanisms and early detection and things like that. And we are measuring stress in families who are detected early versus families who, who are these later community cohorts. And we'll be able to see what those stress levels are like and how they're different. And I do think it's the same thing for the family as it is for the child, right? We want to move towards precision medicine, understanding subtypes, understanding who those kids are. In the same way, it's also families too. We need to understand what the family dynamics are, what's a best fit for them in terms of the treatment. You know, saying to a family where you have two parents that are working 60 hours a week to make ends meet, oh, your child, you know, needs 25 hours a week of treatment, that could be a massive stressor and could, could you know, cause significant family issues. Um, so, 
I think we need to start to recognize too that this precision medicine needs to also take into account family family issues and what's best for the entire family as well as the child. Yeah, and, and ultimately is that I've, I've seen a little bit of that developing over time is that there's been uh, some more technology to be able to bring and normalize some treatment. There's been more of an access to different settings. So whether it's a home setting versus a daycare or clinic setting or a school setting is that they're realizing, you know, this treatment can follow a child pretty well versus just trying to figure out are there targeted skills that might open up the the whole knowledge base around other skills without having to have such focused or intensive treatment at the time. So I think that it's all stuff that we have to learn. And it's researchers like you that are putting that out in the forefront right now that hopefully as clinicians and implementers of the care is that we can learn from what's occurring and, and adopt it and put it into practice. So what what is exciting for you right now? I mean, obviously you're working on some big projects. Um, but I would guess just hearing from you is that there's always something on the horizon. Um, what, what's, what's out there that, you know, might be the next thing or the next big thing? Um, well, I'm, I'm so enamored uh, with eye tracking and also the combination of the power of combining molecular profiles with eye tracking. So it's not just diagnostics for me, but it's also prognostics and pretreatment profiles. So we can say, hey, okay, your child's at risk, let's get them to treatment quickly. But also, who who are you? Are you the type of child that um, has really poor or unusual visual social attention? Or are you the child, you know, keep in mind, my, you know, let's say, for example, the GeoPref test is 17% sensitive. That means that over 80% of children with autism show typical levels of attention to faces and social images and stuff like that. So they're doing great. So the great thing about eye tracking is it also can be clues towards prognosis. So at the same way that you can take one to five minutes to do a diagnostic test, um, we're also starting to do some research to see how well it predicts outcome. Just this couple of minutes, what your visual attention profiles are and your auditory attention profiles are when you're a baby, how well that's predicting your course. And it makes sense, right? Because again, what you look at, what you listen to, that feeds your brain and how it develops. So it makes total sense that that would be a relatively accurate predictor of what's going to happen to you in a couple of years, not unless you intervene and change the style. So if you see a child has a, has a high risk profile, a profile that is predicting not such a great outcome, you say, oh my gosh, okay, let's provide this kind of more tailored treatment because we know the child's starting point. We know what their profile is at this age. It's not a great, you know, trajectories is not a great trajectories plan. So let's try to change that course. So I think trying to go in and figuring out how to adapt treatments to change the course is going to be really interesting and understanding the prognostic power of of eye tracking is uh, really exciting and interesting. I vote for the lead foot on the gas for that research because <laughs> as, as a clinician, it's, you know, if, if you have an idea, it A, helps to be able to inform your treatment decisions and treatment planning decisions, but B, it helps to really place, you know, the, the parent, the family, all the caretakers into a sense of knowing we're moving together towards these specific goals. And this is why it's not just going to be I'm following a template. I'm not just following a checklist. It's I'm going to maybe work on five, 10 year goals because our prognosis might be that we learn a little bit slower in certain areas. And we really want for your child to be empowered this way by the time they're 11 or yeah. it just gives more information. And I love that idea. Yeah. So where can people learn more about your research? 
Well, we have a website. It's autism-center.ucsd.edu. Um, I am at the UCSD Autism Center of Excellence, so University of California, San Diego. Um, we've got all of our articles posted there, so and they're all free because we pay for open access so that you can just go and download our articles. We can read a little bit more about our research there. So that's probably the best place to go. We also have, we're trying to to be more modern with like Facebook and Instagram. So we're trying to start doing some posting there, but really our website's pretty up to date. And I, I know we have such a wonderful advocate community out there and we have parents that are so involved on every step of the way. So I could imagine just sitting here listening to the podcast, listening to you talk, I'd be putting my hand up in the air and saying, hey, how do I volunteer? How do I, can I be a research participant ever? Is, is there any way that, you know, people can put themselves out there to help and support some of this research, whether it's your projects or somebody else's, but to be actively involved on some of this cutting edge technology? Yeah, absolutely. We have, there's different sections of our, our website, you know, talking about different ways you can participate. Um, and all of our, you know, all of our participation is obviously free. And in many cases, actually, the families that participate get some sort of a gift card. Um, as far as volunteering, yeah, we welcome volunteers. I host, you know, I get a lot of emails from people. We just had somebody who was from India who just came over for six months and just worked full time here for free because <laughs> she really wanted to help uh, as, you know, as part of her master's program. And we have a, a whole range of different types of individuals who volunteer here. And there's also contact information on our website about how you can kind of get involved in what we're doing here. Well, Dr. Pierce, I appreciate all that you're doing. I think that it it's pushing everybody to to always have open eyes and to to think what's next and not be complacent with where we're at today. Um, and I appreciate you coming on to talk about these things. And hopefully, we can get back sometime soon. And maybe maybe I'll be one of those volunteers that head down to UCSD to participate. We'll see. <laughs> That'd be great, Deb. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.